in these uh, last few days left in the season of Eastertide, uh, our lectionary readings are pretty much anchored in the Gospel of John. And, and those assigned readings have us looking at some of what's been called uh, the I Am statements of Jesus found in the writings of John. Buddy, can you turn my lights on again? keep wondering why I can't see when I'm up here. So they're focused on the I Am statements of John. And, and Jesus actually started out with them in John chapter 6, verse 35, if you remember when he fed over 5,000 people and right after that miracle took place, he told them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never be hungry. Then in John chapter 8, verse 12, uh, when Jesus and his disciples were at the temple celebrating the, the festival of lights, or the, today we call it Hanukkah, he announced, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In John 10, as the disciples were looking out over the hills where shepherds were herding their sheep, Jesus said, I am the gate of the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Uh, And if you remember also in last week's message, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Later on at the grave of his friend Lazarus, in John 11, Jesus declared, I am the resurrection and the life, as he called his beloved friend up out of his tomb. On the night of his betrayal, when Jesus warned his apostles about his coming arrest and death, if you remember, they didn't understand what he was talking about until finally Thomas said, we don't know where you're going, Jesus. How could we possibly know the way? And our Lord took that opportunity to teach his men, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you can see that uh, in all of those I am statements, they're connected uh, to some external circumstance going on around Jesus at the time that he made them. Because like any good teacher, Jesus used everyday events as kind of a springboard for his teaching on eternal truth And today's reading is no different as Jesus gives his men the last, actually the seventh and final of the I am statements in John chapter 15 where our lectionary takes us today. So this is John 15 beginning in verse 1. Hear now the words of the true and living God. Jesus said, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit. So they'll produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. And those who have ears to hear, let them hear the word of the Lord. So just by way of context here to start out the story, our Lord made this last recorded I am statement immediately after the Last Supper. And if you remember, the Bible tells us with that sacred meal completed that Christ and his men sang a hymn. And then they headed out. They headed outside the city and and down into the Kidron Valley and up the opposite slope to an olive press 
inside a garden called Gethsemane. And as they're walking on the trail, Jesus and his disciples uh, pass through vineyards surrounding the city with their, their gnarled grapevines that showed the scars of their recent pruning for the wine needed for the Passover celebration. And looming above them as they went were the beautiful temple courts whose complex of buildings made of snow-white marble and gold would have glowed in the full Paschal moon. And also from the flames of the oil lamps atop its massive candelabra, the, the giant menorah. The giant menorah that some New Testament scholars and archaeologists think would have also illuminated one of the most remarkable features of the temple precincts which was an ornamental grapevine made of pure gold. Uh, And that symbolism would have really resonated with the people. Uh, For one thing, grapes were central to Israel's economy. And in God's providence, the climate of Israel is ideal for growing them. Uh, But for another thing, and maybe the main thing, the grapevine has always been a symbol of the nation of Israel. Uh, In fact, the symbol of the grapevine was so connected to God's people Uh, as a national emblem that was stamped onto Israeli coins right up to the time that they were conquered by Rome. So this uh, this grapevine ornament that was adorning the temple would have been on every visitor's must-see list in first century Jerusalem if you traveled there. And I want to share this with you. One scholar writing about it describes it like this. He wrote, There trailed above and around the gate, 70 cubits high, from the porch to the holy place, a richly carved vine, extended as a border and decoration. The branches, tendrils, and leaves were of finest gold. The stalks of bunches were of the length of the human form, and the bunches themselves hanging upon them were of costly jewels. And he continues, This vine had an uncommon importance and a sacred meaning in the eyes of the Jews. And with what majestic splendor must it likewise have appeared in the evening as the disciples passed. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Now, Jesus may have even uh, pointed it out as they walked along, perhaps turning to his disciples and saying, uh, you know, men, you know uh, from seeing this how Israel, since its earliest days, has been pictured as a vine which is to produce refreshing fruit. Well, she failed. She failed. But now I am come. Come to make that right because I am the authentic vine. I am the true and genuine one as opposed to this this mere copy or this symbol as beautiful and costly as it may be. I am the fulfillment of all that that symbol only represents. I am the true vine. Uh, And here, just like in all of his other I am statements, Jesus is using a word picture, right? A, A mental image that would be very familiar to his men because as I said, the depiction of the grapevine and the branches is deeply rooted in Israel's history. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called God's vine or vineyard. I'm going to show you that in uh, places like Psalm 80, which says, Turn us again to yourself, O God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. You brought us from Egypt like a grapevine and transplanted us into your land. You cleared the ground for us and we took root and filled the land. Our shade covered the mountains Our branches covered the mighty cedars. But now why have you broken down our walls so that all who pass by may steal our fruit? Come back, we beg you, O Lord of heaven's armies. Look down from heaven and see our plight. Take care of this grapevine. 
or Isaiah chapter 5 is another good example. He writes, now I'll sing a song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. He writes, my beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. And then he waited. He waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Uh, Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge. You judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter? The nation of Israel is the vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord of Heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. And you can see by those readings that that Israel was God's vine, his vineyard, and, and they were to be a people whose lives would produce the fruit of holiness and righteousness among the nations for God's glory. The problem is that the Israel only produced bad fruit rather than the good fruit, and that resulted in their discipline. Discipline in the form of divine judgment upon God's people. A judgment that came in the form of attacks from the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And finally, when Jesus comes on to the scene in human history, Israel still hasn't learned its lesson, so it's still experiencing the results of God's judgment. But now, they're living under Roman rule and under Roman dominance of the land of God's promise. But the good news, like I said after we read our kind of dark responsive reading for today, is that God hasn't given up on His people. Because now, Jesus steps into humanity's place as the fulfillment of, of Israel's prophetic existence. An existence whose twofold purpose was to produce fruit, fruit that would point people to God, and fruit that would point forward to the Messiah that was to come. The Messiah that would succeed where they had failed and who would produce the fruit that God expected. The Messiah that would make it possible for them and for us as branches to grow the fruit that He's looking for. And reminding us that we as branches are dependent solely on upon Christ the vine for life and for nourishment and provision. And you know, even if you don't have a green thumb, there couldn't possibly be an easier illustration to understand, right? When a branch is connected to a vine, it'll grow and there'll be fruit. And the gardener will maintain it so it'll produce more fruit. If a branch isn't connected to the vine, what happens? It dries up, right? Uh, and withers and it won't be having around uh, worth having around, so it gets tossed in the burn pile. And Jesus said the exact same thing about his branches. That we, his followers, who are vitally connected and dependent on him will produce the fruits of righteousness and holiness. And the folks around us won't be able but help to see it in our lives. And those who have no real connection to the master, well, their lives just as easily show the withering effects of the blight of their willful independence. But we'll get back to that because... I think this is the right place to stop and consider just exactly what the fruit is that our text is talking about. And how does the Bible define this fruit that we branches are supposed to produce? What what exactly is it? When the immediate context of the verse, the fruit our Lord means is not defined as evangelism or in bringing people to Christ, uh, as important as that is, 
okay, but rather the fruit of a changed life, a changed character that's fed by the source itself. Because you can't help someone else until you find life, right? The source that produces in us the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, And the Bible tells us what those are in Galatians 5, right? The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it goes on to say, against such things there is no law. And you see, this is not a passage on gaining salvation, is it? It's a passage on living it out. It's a passage on demonstrating its inner reality through our outward actions. Because those good branches whom Jesus made reference to are people that are already reborn. So this is about application. It's about not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. And doing it joyfully. Because if we are connected, then we're going to be content. And we're going to be satisfied. And as true Christians, we'll want more and more of a connection to Him. Uh, Not more of uh, what exalts ourselves and what fills our own wants and our own desires, but His. One author said, "To, to be content in Christ is the greatest accomplishment we could desire. The greatest accomplishment we could desire. Because when we're plugged into the vine, we thrive And we live more fully. So Jesus said, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. So are you? If you claim to be a follower of Christ here today, ask yourself, is my life producing fruit in keeping with righteousness and holiness? Uh, Because real branches who are really connected to the true vine will be producing real fruit. Not maybe, the verse says will be. And now having said that, we talked about this a little in Sunday school, uh, not everybody is in the same stage of fruit production, are they? Because no matter who you are or where you are in the journey of the Christian life, there's always going to be folks who are way out ahead of us in Christ's vineyard, Uh, people who we should be emulating. And there's always going to be those folks who are are lagging behind. Uh, They're producing fruit, but their crop is just enough to get by on with very little to share. And somewhere in between those two extremes, we should all be demonstrating the fruit of the life that is connected to the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. Otherwise, you can't really call yourself a Christian, can you? And that's what I was kind of alluding to earlier that I said we'd get back to about those independent branches who who claim to be part of the vine, a, a member of the community, but who, when it comes right down to it, don't really have any connection at all. And that's important because there's a dangerous false teaching that's kind of infiltrated uh, into the church over the last 25, 30 years or so. Uh, An insidious kind of cultural construct that claims that a person could be somehow saved by Christ and become part of a church but not be expected to demonstrate uh, any type of change in their life, right? And that teaching goes, well, you know, surely if God is just love and, and warm feelings and forgiveness then all of those other teachings on morality in the Bible are just optional, aren't they? Right? Uh, Because I can come to God any old way I am. Right? Well, I guess that is partially true. uh, Because you can come to God however you are and wherever you are. But the truth is He loves you too much to leave you that way. He loves you too much to leave you that way, whether you like it or not. And, and, And you can shout... Uh, over and over again until you turn as purple as a bunch of grapes. Uh, I I am the one who runs my life, right? I am the one who decides what I do 
and who I do it with. I am the one who determines my destiny. Uh, and when you're all done with your little tantrum, you can, you can sit down and pat yourself on the back for how clever you've been. Uh, that, that is at least until the gardener uh, comes by and says, no, no, I am. I am. That's why Jesus said, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they'll produce even more. And I think it's really interesting here, something I don't want you to miss. Uh, not only does Jesus use visual symbolism here with the vines and the branches, that's pretty easily understood, but it also in this particular verse, he uses a play on words, uh, one that's not really renderable in English. Uh, who here is bilingual? Anybody speak two languages? Okay. Uh, you know, the hardest thing to translate between languages are words that rhyme. Because they might rhyme in, in German, but they don't rhyme in English. Or they might rhyme in English, but they don't rhyme in German. Well, actually, the Greek text here, Jesus is using a rhyme. It's a play on words. And he said, every branch that does not bear fruit, I cut off. Or in Greek, it's iro. Okay, iro. Every branch that does bear fruit, I cleanse, which is kathiro. So it's iro, kathiro. Okay, and you probably recognize the sound of that last word because it's partially where we get our English words cauterize or catharsis from. And Jesus' meaning here is plain in that in this world, you're either in one of two categories. You're either iro or kathiro. You're either getting cleaned or you're getting cut. There's no middle category, right? You're in one or the other. And Jesus is saying in our passage today, clearly and without apology, the difference between real branches and false branches are that real branches will produce the fruit of righteousness, while false branches, they're not going to produce any fruit at all, and they're going to be removed and be burned. Now, that was definitely not a popular message in Jesus' day when he preached it. Uh, and it's not any popular, more popular now. Because let's face it, nobody, including me, maybe especially me, ever wants to be uh, told that they're wrong. Right? Just ask my family. Right? <laughs> I see my mother-in-law is really looking at me. Right? <laughs> Right? But right who, right, who wants to be told they're wrong? Anybody? Okay. <laughs> but you see, the trouble is when that thinking comes into the church, because if the church that you attend, or the God, in little air quotes, that you listen to, always agrees with you, and always validates all of your decisions, and, and, and never makes you feel a little uncomfortable from time to time, or never pricks your conscience, you know, it's very possible you may be worshiping a God of your own making. A God really no different than the golden calf in the wilderness. Because the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is proclaimed in the pages of sacred scripture always corrects and disciplines the children that he loves. Uh, he, doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't do it for the sake uh, of, of just punishing them, but he does it for the sake of their life and their growth and their spiritual health. That's why Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. And yes, it's painful, but it pays off. Because that verse continues, there is no discipline that seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. One author has said, the children need two pats on the back, one high enough 
to encourage them when they do right and one low enough to discourage them when they do wrong. Are you listening, guys? Children need two pats on the back, one high enough to encourage them when they do right and one low enough to discourage them when they do wrong. And he continues, effective discipline requires knowing which end of the child to pat and when. Which end and when? The truth is children really want strong boundaries in order to feel safe and nurtured and loved. Any good psychologist will tell you that. And also so they know where they stand with their parents. And the same is true of a child of God. He, his pruning proves that he's our loving parent. Right? His pruning proves he's our loving parent. And what is this pruning process? Well, it's, it's the Father cutting out of our lives the things that hinder us from being more fruitful. As the father's pruning knife, like a, an expert gardener, is ready to cut away anything in our lives that keeps us at a distance from him, even if that's painful for a time. And the truth is, the father may hurt you, but he'll never harm you. See, his pruning is for our good and his glory. Uh, and it may take away some temporary happiness, but it'll exchange it for holiness, uh, which is God's ultimate goal. And even though that sounds pretty tough, Christ promised we'll never have to face it alone. That's why he said in verse 5 today, Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. But apart from me, let's read it together. What happens apart from him? You can do nothing. Nothing. And I guess that really is a two-edged sword because while it's a message of strength for those of us in the vine... It's also a confirmation of the futility of human reasoning and efforts and plans outside of Christ. So, you know, I told you at the beginning uh, how much regard and delight the first century Jews took in that magnificent golden grapevine in the temple, uh, in, in all of the temple complex, really. In fact, they actually elevated it. They elevated it to, uh, the temple to a place where they were actually trusting not in God anymore, but in the temple itself. They were trusting in the house of God rather than God. Uh, and eventually they just absolutely convinced themselves that as long as the temple was standing, that God was on their side. The trouble is, though, that even though those fine building materials that went into making up the temple were still standing, the people had long ago forgotten what it stood for, who it stood for, really, and why it existed, uh, not just to be a, a, a big community center where people met together a few hours a week, but to be the walls of protection around the truth of God's word and the lighthouse to point to him and to the personal relationship that he offers. And so the people of that day, they, uh, they pulled themselves more and more and more away from that living source, uh, from the connection to the vine, uh, and they began to wither up spiritually uh, and morally. But they didn't notice at first, because oh, they could still go to church. They could still have fellowship. They could still go home feeling good about themselves. And so imagine their surprise in 70 AD when Titus, the son of the Roman emperor Vespasian, led the Roman legions to surround the city of Jerusalem. And how shortly after he surrounded it, his forces breached the outer wall. And with its defenses lying in the dust, how men began the systematic raid of the city. A raid that culminated in the destruction of the temple that they trusted so much in and the looting of everything of value in it. The looting that saw those sacred relics, all of them, taken to Rome where they were displayed 
in a celebration of victory. Uh, a victory so memorable that it was memorialized in marble and is still visible today. You can see it in the, the uh, Arch of Titus. And why did God allow that to happen? Why did God allow this disaster to befall his holy city? Because he was cutting and cleansing and pruning and plucking. And how do I know that? It's because in this one event, in this one event, God destroyed the nation of Israel that had 40 years earlier rejected his son, revealing them as uh, false branches that were never really grafted into the vine in the first place. And at the same time, in the same event, he scattered that group of early Christians who, although they thought they were just escaping the wrath of Titus, were really in the providence of God reshaping the Roman Empire from the inside by being scattered to every corner of it and carrying with them their individual rooted connections to Jesus Christ. Uh, roots that they transplanted everywhere they went, using their difficulties to prune them and make them more fruitful and to advance the kingdom. And that's how we're here today. Because those true branches grew stronger under the pressure of the pruning shears, and so can we if we are really connected to the vine. So are you? Or are you a withered up branch and maybe you just don't know it yet? Are you, are, are you being cleansed or are you being ready to be cut off? Ask yourself how God is pruning you today. Ask yourself what kind of fruit you're producing. Or are you refusing to yield to the hand of the gardener? Right? If you are, consider what Jesus endured to save you. What he endured to make you holy. And then ask yourself, is whatever you're clinging on to for momentary happiness of more value than the hours he spent on the cross to pay for that debt? Or is Christ your everything today? Is he your bread of life, the one who spiritually sustains you? Is he your light of the world to illuminate your path? Is he your gate that's given you free and unlimited access to his kingdom? Is he your good shepherd who, who gave himself to pay for your sins? Is he your way and your life so that, you know, whether you, you die before the rapture or you're taken alive in it, you know that your home in heaven is secure? Is he really your way and truth or would you really rather make your own? Are you connected to that true vine, growing in it and growing genuine gratitude for all that he's done for us? Or are you just filling your wine press with the grapes of God's wrath. See, Christ is the true vine, and without him, we can do nothing. We are nothing but a branch pruned from the vine, ready for the fire. Or, brothers and sisters, we can stay connected to Christ and live. So today's the day to decide. Choose life. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to, uh, to be that vine, that connection uh, between ourselves and you. And so we, we ask you, Lord, to uh, be with all of those that you're calling, that you keep us connected uh, vitally to yourself, that you would allow us to uh, produce in our lives, Lord, all the fruits of the Spirit, uh, and that you would just reach out and, and call out to those branches that are they're withering, and you would restore life to them. We thank you, Father, for your love and for your peace, and we thank you for all that you're about to do for us this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.